is Jesus saying, and I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. And I had with that an image. I had with that the image of a man standing in the middle of a huge parking lot. And people were coming out of different places, out of storefronts, out of their cars, out of different side streets, and they were all converging on him. And I thought about the, the we're, we're in geometry right now in my household, I thought about the geometric principle. If that is happening, every single person is not only getting closer to Christ in the middle, but to one another as well. They have to out of necessity. As they get closer, they get closer to one another. So as we draw near to the Lord, we are getting connected to his people. And that's what led me to this passage this morning. So I want to begin with the voice that we hear from heaven. Jesus is praying, and he says, Father, glorify your name. And when he says this, God answers from heaven with a loud, booming voice and says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now, it's interesting what the people there hear. Some of them say it thundered. Others say an angel is speaking to Jesus. And in both cases, they're wrong. It was actually the Father affirming him. And Jesus makes it clear that that voice was for the crowd's sake and not for Jesus' sake. This is only, there's only three times in the Bible, where the, in the Gospels, where the Father speaks like that. Once is at Jesus' baptism. And again, it's for the crowd. This is my son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And he's talking to the crowd. Same thing happens on the Mount of Transfiguration when, when Jesus goes up and his, his glory is revealed. Again, a voice comes and says, this is my son with whom I am pleased, listen to him. These voices are for us, it's for the crowd. And one of the things that a professor of mine said about this very text is he said, in this world, divine things have an ambiguity to them and that ambiguity tests our hearts. So the hearts of people that were not inclined towards God said it was thunder. And the hearts of people that were open to spiritual things said it was an angel. And Jesus said this was for you, and I was just praying to the Father. I wonder where your, where your heart is inclined. Is it open to the divine things in this world? How do you respond when God interacts? I think about last week, Dan shared the, a simple testimony of uh, asking uh, one of our parishioners, Doug Ward, to build us those, that coffee bar out there, and he wanted something rustic out of old wood that could stay under the tent and not be injured by the, the uh, elements. And Doug was thinking, he's a woodworker, and he was thinking about where he could get this wood, and he was up in North Carolina visiting some friends and had dinner with them, and he was not talking about it at all. And the guy says to Doug, you know, I'm tearing down an old barn, and I've got all this wood that I'm going to just burn unless you have a use for it. Doug, whose heart is inclined to God, immediately said, ah, the Lord has provided. This is a God thing. But you know, people whose heart is not inclined to God would look at that and go, it's just a coincidence. You're in North Carolina. There are tons of old barns up here. There's probably wood lying around everywhere. It's just a coincidence. Is your heart inclined toward God, or do you dismiss the things of God when they happen? That's the question I'm wrestling with today. And the cross is ambiguous to people as well. That's what we're going to focus this morning on the cross. And those who uh, like Jesus or are a fan of Jesus look at the cross and they say, oh, he was such a good teacher. It's a pity, a shame that he had to die. And those who are not fond of Christ look back in history and say, oh, well, clearly he got what he deserved. He's just another criminal, another religious zealot, and he got what was coming to him. Of course he died on a cross. Right? And neither of those is correct. 
He didn't deserve the cross, and it wasn't a pity or a shame that he died on it. But what this text shows us is that it actually was his glory. The cross is the glory of Christ. And that's not what people thought. And that's not what some people still think. And we look at that and we think, how is it the glory of Christ? I'm gonna expound this text under three headings. And they accidentally got alliterated. Forgive me, I've just come back from a preaching class. I have all these like traditional things. So <laughs> we're gonna see the cross's security, its sacrifice, and its share. And I'm gonna work the text kind of backwards. But you're probably thinking, okay, okay the glory of the cross, right? We're, we're looking at the glory of the cross and that sounds so churchy. Glory is such a churchy word. How could this possibly be relevant to me? Here's how it's relevant for you. Every single one of you and I am seeking glory. We are seeking glory. We are seeking it for ourselves, usually. And I need to define a little bit about what glory is so that you can understand that and you can think, am I actually pursuing glory in my life? When you look back in the scriptures and you look at the Hebrew word and the Greek word for glory, there are multiple definitions and these are the main ones. First of all, glory has weight to it. It's the weight of glory. There's a substance to it. There's something big about it. And as the Psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Imagine, the, remember back to the last time you were out on a dark night when the sky was lit up with stars and you stood there and just gazed. Did you not suddenly feel weightless, insignificant, small, and the glory of God's creation was so big it took your breath away? Or maybe that happens when you go to the beach. You're standing there and you look out at the ocean and you think, there is so much water out there. It is so big and so deep, and I am so small in comparison. Glory has a substance and a weight to it, and God's glory is heavy. Not only is there a weight, there's a radiance to it. There's a brilliance, a brightness. That's why Jesus was trans, uh, transfigured when he was on that mount. He, he started to glow brightly. That's why Moses, when he went up to meet with God, started to glow brightly. In Hebrews, it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Glory is bright, it's brilliant, it glows. I love going back into Revelation and seeing where these things are fulfilled. If you look at the second to last chapter in the whole Bible, it describes what is to come and it pictures this heavenly city, this new Jerusalem. Of course, it's figurative language, but listen to what it says. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. So glory has a radiance to it, and there's no need for a sun in heaven because the sun, S-O-N, is the radiance. That's where the light comes from. So it's got a radiance to it. Also, there's abundance. The idea of glory speaks of abundance, abundance of possessions. I think about the temptation of Satan to Jesus. He said, if you will worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms and their glory. And in an instant, he, instance, he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. That's a lot of stuff. In his hand is abundance. And then finally, the one that you probably would think of, because if you hear glory, maybe you think of that idea of no guts, no glory, right? It's about receiving honor or being praiseworthy or doing something that is noble and worthy. All of that is tied up in the concept of glory. And so I ask you again, 
Are you pursuing those things in your life? I am, but the question is, am I pursuing those things in my own strength and for my own purpose, or am I pursuing those things to give God glory and to reflect his glory back to him? Like the moon has no light in it, it reflects the sun out. Are you pursuing those things? All of those things belong to God, and what's amazing is he shares them with us when we rejoice in him and the glory of his cross. So now, let's dig into the text. Look at verse 31. We want to see its security, the security of the glory in the cross. In verse 31, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's speaking, of course, about going to the cross. And he's saying, in this moment, I am going to establish the security of my kingdom. The ruler of this world will be cast out. He's referring to Satan. And you have to go all the way back to Genesis and look at what happened. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they effectively took God off the throne of their heart and allowed Satan to climb on there. And unfortunately, they didn't have the power, we don't have the power to get him off of that throne. What all of the Old Testament is doing is it is setting up one after another after another of attempts to get the right person in power. And only Christ can do it. And so when he goes to the cross, he says, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the prince of this world, the ruler of this world, be cast out. Now, of course, Satan is not totally dealt with yet, but something has significantly changed in the equation. You no longer have to have him on your throne. You no longer have to be a slave to sin. You no longer have to stumble over those old things. You have an invitation to have a new Lord of your life. Jesus has established something here that will go on forever. And although right now he invisibly rules and reigns the universe, the day will come when it will be very clear who's in charge. And he's inviting us to give him lordship. And he's saying, I have established the security of my kingdom. When he came in his public ministry, he said the time is at hand. The the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And invited us to repent and believe in him. And everywhere you read through the gospels, Don't you find it odd that there are so many power struggles with demons that are being cast out? And Jesus is doing all of these things because there is a clash of kingdoms. And what happens at the cross is a victory that is guaranteed. He won. And the very thing that looked like was going to be his defeat turned out to be his glory, that he defeated evil with the instrument of evil, because that's who our God is. That's how he works. So, We are now, if you're a Christian, now life is about working out the implications of that. If God's kingdom is breaking into this world and the ruler of this world has been thrown down off off of his throne, what does it look like now to have Christ as the Lord of my heart in my family, in my workplace, at my school, with my friends, in my relationships? That's discipleship. The apostle tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work within us. We are now working out the implications of this. What does it look like to be a Christian in a world now? A world that was not his, and he's now claimed at the cross. The cross, the glory of the cross, we want to see the security that Jesus accomplished. Now go to verse 24. Let's see its sacrifice. This is where, where the real work comes in. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. John chapter 12 is a key hinge in the gospel. In this moment, Greeks, Gentiles, non-Jews have come seeking Jesus. They come to his his disciples and say, we want to see Jesus. 
Word about him has gone so far, it's now outside of the boundaries of the nation of Israel. And that's how Jesus knows now is the time. Now is my hour. For three years, he's been saying, it's not yet my hour. It's not yet my hour. It's not yet my hour. And he's been saying, I've come only for the lost sheep of Israel, which proved really confusing for the disciples when they started doing their mission. They thought it was just for Israel, but it actually was for everyone. But his earthly ministry for three years was just to Israel. And then the cross was where it was for everyone. And then at this moment, as soon as he sees that these Greeks are coming, he goes, okay, now it's time. And look at what he does. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I'm in verse 23. And, and he's talking about having to, he's, he's really, in verse 27, he's really troubled. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. If we think Jesus' work on the cross was easy for him, we're not reading the text. He was in great anguish here. He, the, the sacrifice of the cross was so huge, even as the old chorus we've been singing for years says, I will never know how much it costs to see my sin on that cross. We really won't because we don't know experientially what the union was between the Son of God and his Father and how on the cross the heart of Jesus took all of the sin that has ever existed in the world and ever will exist. He was paying in one moment for all of it and he shed his blood and it was such a powerful thing that happened that when Jesus died, the sky turned dark for the hours right before that. And in the moment he died, the temple court curtain tore. It says rocks were split open. People who were dead and in their tombs, we sometimes miss this, they, they came back to life and they walked into the city. How freaky is that? I mean, really. And the reason was because there was so much happening right there on the cross. I love movies when they show big explosions, you know, Lord of the Rings type things, you know, when, when, when the big powerful enemy gets killed and then there's this like burst of light that goes across everyone and they all fall down, right? It was bigger than that. <laughs> <laughs> the sacrifice of the cross was so huge. And I talked about glory having abundance. The pints of blood in Jesus' body, though small, were pure and so potent he was able with that sacrifice to win for us forgiveness, atonement for our sins, reconciliation to God. He is that powerful, but it cost him that much. So the cross is his glory, and we see in it the sacrifice. And now thirdly, see in the cross the share of glory. Look at verse 25. In verse 25 it says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There's that backwards thing that's all throughout Jesus' teaching. It's like the kingdom of God works in complete reversal of how the kingdom of, of Satan in this world is functioning. It's backwards. If you want to save your life, you have to lose it. It's backwards. It's counterintuitive. The message here is quit trying to save yourself. Quit trying to win your own glory. You can't do it. You don't have the resources. And yet the temptation for us is to do it ourselves over and over again. And what we need to hear is, one, we can't do it. It's too big for us. And two, Christ has already done it for us. And we have to simply give in to that. We need to stop struggling against it and repent and yield and give into it. And then we get all of it. We get it all. I mean, you want weight and substance? You want to be a person who has magnitude to them? I mean, think about this. In the resurrection, you will have a perfect body. 
No more sin, no more aging, no more suffering, no more death, no more pain, no more crying for eternity, a physical body. That's got magnitude. There's a glory in that. Think about Jesus saying, if you are a Christian, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The dwelling place of God is now with man. The Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, dwells within you. Again, there's great glory there because of the magnitude of that. You're a temple of God and his presence. You want radiance? I know the commercials are selling radiant skin. Do I look radiant from my tan from this summer? Right? Everybody's pursuing. We want to look bright and glowing and healthy, and we want that. Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. There is radiance And the Apostle Paul says, we're not like Moses, who when he came down from the mountain, the glory was fading off of his face. But in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says that unlike Moses, we are going from one degree to another, from glory to glory, increasingly so, as we reflect God's radiance. You want radiance? It's there for you. You're pursuing abundance, abundance of possessions, things, stuff. Ephesians says that you are already seated in the heavenlies with Christ. You are a co-heir with him, which means the inheritance is yours as well. You already have all things in Christ. You just don't see it yet, unless you have the eyes to see it. Did it thunder or did God talk? Can you hear from his word? There's abundance. It says in the Beatitudes, the blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. This whole world is yours and it's gonna get fixed before it's handed over to you and to me. And we get to share in that. There is now, being prepared for you by Christ, a mansion in God's house. However that works, he taught that in John 14. So there is abundance in him. And then finally, honor. You want honor, do you want approval, you want praise? There will never be more praise given to you than if you walk with God and you get to that moment where he says, well done, good and faithful servant. When you hear God Almighty say that to you, you will have all of the honor and glory you want and you will fall on your face and worship him because it came from him. How powerful is that? I wanna conclude, I I want you to get connected because I'm gonna explain how that works. I want you to get connected, like in the vision of coming closer to Christ. I want you connected to other people so that we will be encouraging one another in these truths because right now, this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. It is the work that is getting us ready for what is to come. And by being with other people in the faith, we will be able to do well. It will encourage us. It will build us up. It will help us. I want to conclude when I think about the the share of glory. Jesus died on a cross, and he says to his followers, if you want to come after me, you have a cross to take up as well. And it's putting death to ourselves and our efforts to win glory for ourselves and our efforts to save ourselves, and it is handing handing it all over to him. I heard, I'm gonna, I'm gonna conclude with an illustration that I heard from another preacher on this very text. And it so clearly articulates the gospel that it's worth sharing. In fact, he shared it in two back-to-back sermons. It was so good. And this is from 1990. There was a, a river, I don't know, know which one it was, but there was a news article of a man in a, on a river in a raft. And I grew up in a city with three rivers and there were dams every so often and they were six or eight feet tall. They went, I don't know, 300 feet across the river and they would look really nice and glassy on the top and there's some frothy water underneath. And there are locks all the way, I'm thinking of Pittsburgh where I grew up. And they're all over, the Mississippi has some other places. And they're very dangerous. And a man was in a raft going down a river and he saw the dam and he thought this little six foot dam, he could just go right over it and keep going on his raft. 
And there were witnesses, which is why we know this happened. There were witnesses on the shore that were helpless. The raft got hooked on the top of the dam and he flipped out of it into the white water. And he, it was very cold, and he was swimming for his life. Just keep, you know, keep a breath, keep a breath. And the water's trying to pull him into that. And he was fighting and fighting and fighting until he got so cold and exhausted and hypothermic that he finally just had to give up and he actually did die. But the thing that's so interesting is the minute he stopped trying to save himself, it sucked him into the water and five seconds later he was 12 feet downstream and popped up. Because of the way that those hydraulics work, if you try to fight it, it will just, it will just keep trying to pull you in. If you give into it, it will take you in and then bring you out to the calm water. And that is such an amazing picture of the good news. If you try to save yourself, if you fight for your life in your own glory, you will drown. If you yield to it and give it over to Christ, he will bring you to life. Is that not a picture of what the gospel is? It is so powerful for us. The glory is in the cross and he invites us into a smaller cross, which is to, to stop trying to save ourselves and just receive what he has for us. He's already done it. And how amazing is that gift that he has for us? This Sunday, I want you to consider plugging into the church, into the life of the community of faith, so that that, that gospel message can be worked out in the specifics of your life. I can't tell you what it means to be a Christian and do your business. I can't tell you what it means to be a Christian in your family. You need the community of faith to help you figure that out. And there are hundreds of ways to plug into the life of faith here. But it is all for God's glory and he shares it with us. How powerful is this message that we have? Would you pray with me?